Good morning. How are you? When I, uh, when I got here roughly 8.30 for the 9 o'clock service, I saw all sorts of sleeping bags lying out there, and I thought, man, this is like a Who concert. People came early to get in line for my sermon, but then, then Sarah mentioned that her son had a sleepover, and that's what was going on. Anyway, um, before we get started, I first just simply want to say thank you. Uh, I really appreciate you being here. Uh, in this Pearl Harbor Day, I do appreciate you being here. We really are in unprecedented times, but all times are unprecedented. The biggest financial issue that we have today is not the market. Markets eventually come back. It's not the recession. Business cycles have existed as long as there's been business. Things do not stay the way they are ever. We can't extrapolate ever. Comedian Stephen Wright said, When I turned two, I was really anxious because I had doubled my age in a year. I thought, if this keeps up, by the time I'm six, I'll be 90. And I know this is a Unitarian congregation. I know the math doesn't work exactly, but I still thought it was funny. Um, Anyway, our biggest issue today is the immediacy, immediacy and insistency of the news cycle. So for the next few minutes, we have no cell phones, no web, only community. Right here, right now, together, in a very safe and very important place. The values that we espouse around social justice and the worth and dignity of every human being are what we need to wrap around us during these times. This is a time to turn to each other rather than on each other. So let's get started. Given how people today feel like they have so little time, I want to honor the trade of your time that you made with me. My topic, my topic is entitled Spend Your Life Wisely, which is how I end my monthly columns for the Star Tribune. Anyone ever see them? Okay. Thanks. Write my editor. Write my editor. What I, only if you like them. Only if you like them. Um, what I want to talk about today are some principles that you can apply in your lives to better use all of your resources, not simply your financial ones. Some of you I know have heard me speak, speak before, so bear with me if I use some of the same jokes. But anyway, as I said today, we're going to be going through some principles to help you spend your life wisely. These are drawn from 25 years of working with clients in trying to improve the quality of their lives through the use of all their resources, financial, spiritual, social, intellectual. This thing called money is so unbelievably complicated and yet so very simple. Most of us have gone through the same progression. We start off deciding how much of our lives we will sell for money. We sometimes have a say in what we can charge in this days for dollars exchange, but if we work for someone else, we never really have total say. And at some point, we often find ourselves no longer able to make a choice about how much we work and at what cost or what price. The houses, the college tuition, the cars, the summer camps have forced us into a cycle. We work so we can buy things that make us feel better for how hard we are working. And the harder we work, the more we justify it through lifestyle choices. We're in communities with people who at least externally 
have similar resources, wants, and desires. And on really bad days, we get so tired that we say we want to simplify life. But we're so busy that we can't even imagine what simplification looks like. We're like Rilke's panther, pacing our cage. We feel like we live behind a thousand bars, and behind the bars, no world. Somehow, at some point, we forgot that money's ultimate use and only purpose is to either be spent or given away. We are in a period of great uncertainty. I just finished reading a book entitled The Science of Fear by Daniel Gardner. That was the uh, column that Kate referenced. In a part of the book, he describes a study done by Paul Slavik, who's a pioneer of risk perception research. And Slavik observed that there are critical differences between how experts and how lay people view risk. And much of this perception causes people to act against their own self-interest. He created an index of 18 criteria that cause people to view how risky something is. And the more or the greater number of things that appear on the list, the more people's perception of dread. And guess what? Right now, we are currently, I counted, experiencing 16 of the 18 items on that list. So in addition to the real pain you may be feeling from the stock market or tightened finances, you're also most likely experiencing an imagined sense of dread. But as real as it may seem, this sense of dread is imagined. Things will get better. Things fall apart, and things come together over and over again. In investment parlance, we, re- we call that reversion to the mean. In a spiritual sense, we call that impermanence. You need to trust me on this. As Richard Pryor said, who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? <laughs> As I speak to you in our church, As you sit in community, I want you to think about what Unitarian Minister Forrest Church said about religion. He said, religion is our human response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. And spending our life wisely is how we manage this reality on a daily basis. It's bringing together the money and the meaning. Both are important. I'd like to share with you some principles that I've put together. The first principle in spending your life wisely is take time each day to give appreciation and thanks. I personally am incredibly grateful and thankful not just for my family or my job or my friends or my business, but for my life. And this doesn't mean that everything is going great. I mentioned a couple years ago here that every morning I wake up early and I put on a pot of coffee and I walk our two dogs. And these dogs are always thrilled to see me. And you met Bridget and my two almost 16-year-old daughters, so you know that sometimes the dogs are the only beings in the house thrilled to see me. (laughs) Um, After our 20-minute walk, I go to my desk and I read three books that help me focus, and then I sit down with my journal and I write. And I write about things that I value, things that I appreciate, things that matter most to me, I write about where I've done things that require me to apologize and ask for forgiveness. And I write about the personal things that I want to work on today. I can be out the door by 6.30 and I'm home for family dinners each night. This little ritual 
has made my life appreciably better. I guarantee you that if you spend a little bit of your time every day thinking about what is going right and figuring out with whom you need to make connections, your life is going to be better as well. Even if it's currently great, it's going to be better. And when things are going poorly, you know that when you wake up the next morning, you'll be dealing with whatever's bothering you. Psychiatrist Martin Seligman writes in his book, Authentic Happiness, there are three ways that you can lastingly feel more happiness about your past. One, let go of an ideology that your past determines your future. Two, increase your gratitude about the good things in your past. And three, learn how to forgive past wrongs. One of our clients was very angry about her divorce. Her life had changed significantly from what she had imagined it would look like. She was angry that her husband had remarried. She was angry that her husband had a great paying job. And although she had considerable assets, she could not let go of the feelings that she got the short end of the stick. And then her ex suddenly died from a heart attack. She was very upset when she came into our next meeting and said something to the effect that maybe he really got the short end of the stick. What would these last few years have been like for her if she could have found a way to forgive him before he died? Carrie Fisher, in an interview in Esquire magazine, said this about resentment. Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Principle number two is honest self-assessment. Reality is a critical link to spending your life wisely. In his uh, book, Good to Great, Jim Collins writes of the Stockdale Paradox, which was based on his discussion with Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was a prisoner at the Hanoi Hilton. Some of you might remember him as Ross Perot's running mate. You remember that? What am I doing here? Um, anyway, when asked how he survived his eight years of imprisonment, he said he held two seemingly contrary truths in his hands. One, retain faith that you will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties, and at the same time, confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. When asked who did not make it, he said the optimists. He said the optimists in November would say, come Thanksgiving, I'll be safe, I'll be free, and they wouldn't be freed. Come Christmas, I'll be freed, and they wouldn't be freed. Come Easter, I'll be freed, and they wouldn't be freed. And eventually they gave up hope. We have clients who come in worrying that their money may run out, but not recognizing instead that they're underliving their opportunities for experiences. And we have clients who have paid little attention to how much they were accumulating, just thinking that things will always take care of themselves. Neither of these approaches are healthy. It's not possible to know the future, but it is possible to be comfortable that you can handle what the future lays at your feet. Right now, any of you who are invested have seen your investments drop to uncomfortable levels, un unless you're one of my clients. No, that's not. <laughs> lie, big lie, not true. <laughs> not true at all. Um, what, what does this really change? Unless you are living off your portfolio and selling as you go, I would suggest that nothing is different. If you were thinking about retiring in a couple years, what has changed? You never knew how much money you were going to have. And you still don't. After these mega bear markets, it's taken a couple years to get at least two-thirds of your money back. 
In 73, 74, with the oil embargo, Watergate, 11% inflation, it took two years to retrace over the, the losses that were over 40% in the prior years. So when you self-assess, try to do it reflectively rather than in a reactionary way. But self-assessment also reaches into what our own contributions are to any situation that we find ourselves in. In the Arbinger Institute's book, Leadership and Self-Deception, they explain, an act contrary to what I feel I should do for another is called an act of self-betrayal. When I betray myself, I begin to see the world in a way that justifies my self-betrayal. And when I see a self-justifying world, my view of reality becomes distorted. And when this happens, I force others to act in a similar manner. Everyone is self-justifying. I remember when Bridget and I had Mimi and Vera, and they were, they were in. Any of you have twins out there? Okay, well, the one truth about twins is that you have sleep deprivation when they're infants. And I remember Bridget and I laying in bed and hearing one of the girls start crying. And I'd, maybe I'd lie in bed and open my eyes first, and I'd say, oh, my gosh, I should really go get the babies. And then I'd lie there and I'd say, well, I've got a really busy day tomorrow. What's Bridget got going on tomorrow? Man, she probably doesn't have anything going on tomorrow. Why am I getting up to get the babies? What's Bridget doing? Bridget's not doing anything. And anyway, so I end up creating this narrative in my own mind because I didn't do what I was supposed to do and I'm forced to make Bridget bad. We have certain agreements with ourselves about ourselves. We need to understand and be comfortable with what those agreements are because in the end we can only work on ourselves. Principle three is focus on your strengths. This is one of my favorites. When I was in college, I had this uh, class at the university, which was in one of those giant lecture halls called Religious Studies. And any of you who went to the university, you'd know you'd have like 1,000 or 1,500 people in your class. And I took this class simply not because I was overly religious, but because there were no mid-quarters, there was no attendance requirement. And every year for the last 10 years, the question was the exact same, which was describe the wanderings and the teachings of the Apostle Paul. So I took this with a friend of mine, and we were studying for this particular test, and I got there for the final, and it was a little bit late, and so I walked to the end of the lecture hall and had to sit in the way back with my friend, and by the time I sat down on my seat, the tension in the auditorium was palpable. People were snapping their pencils and walking up and slamming their, their test booklet on the, on the table, and I didn't know what was going on, and I opened up my test booklet, and I read it, and it says, Criticize the Sermon on the Mount. And I collapsed back in my chair because I had no idea what and anything to do with the Sermon on the Mount. And I look over at my buddy to commiserate, and he's writing furiously. Sweat's pouring off his brow. He's writing like mad. I storm up. I throw my test booklet up there. By the time I get up there, most of the auditorium's cleared up, except for my buddy who's writing like mad. So a week later, I want to go see what we got on the tests. And obviously, I knew. But I walk up, and I see my test booklet in with the huge pile of Fs. And this is before I had a, uh, an ethics requirement in business, so I opened up my friend's test booklet, and I wanted, to, I wanted to see what he wrote. And I open it up, and he writes, Who am I to criticize the Sermon on the Mount? What I'd really like to talk about are the wanderings and the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Well, clear, clearly, he got the concept of focusing on your strengths. In... In Marcus Buckingham's book, Now Discover Your Strength, he points out that in building an organization, we must not only accommodate for the, the fact that each employee is different, but we must capitalize on these differences. 
He claims that each person's talents are enduring and unique and that each person's greatest room for growth is in the area of his or her greatest strengths. In our own company, each of our employees have crafted personal purpose statements with which we try to balance the things that they're good at with the things that bring them the most meaning. How much time are you spending trying to get good at doing something that you will never be good at? Instead, are there ways for you to direct your attention toward things in which you already have talent? A firm like ours exists because clients know they're better off working with us on any area that they could actually do on their own if they chose to. But they don't. Their leverage comes from hiring us so that they can do the things that are more important to them, being a doctor, running their businesses, being a spouse or a partner or parent, or even a child to their elderly parents. Principle four is think more good than bad rather than right or wrong. In the book, The Paradox of Choice, Professor Barry Swartz talks of maximizers versus satisficers. And a maximizer is someone who has to make things perfect. And a satisficer is someone who accepts good enough. And if you think about, this is an easy test for yourself, when you bought your first home, if you looked at 100 homes, you were a maximizer. And if you looked at three homes, you're a satisficer. And guess who's happier? The satisficers. And the reason why is the maximizers end up buying a home, but it doesn't have the fireplace that home 67 had. And it doesn't have the view over the backyard that home 32 had. And yet the satisficers are saying, this is fine. Almost none of the choices that we make are all good or all bad. The stakes are hardly ever as high as we make them. If you think back to some decisions that you've ruminated over and wrung your hands over and see if they turned out exactly the way they would, that you thought they would, they almost never did. One of the things to focus on is what's been your process for making decisions, not what have been the results. In fact, some of the best results come from horrible decisions. Cognitive psychology uses the term cognitive bias to describe the difference between making a good decision and having a good outcome. Instead, look at things in three ways. What do you want? What do you know? And what can you do? Then frame your decisions in such a way to help you determine how you want to focus. Framing the question is important, and so is flexibility. Are you exactly where you thought you were, where you were going to be 10 years ago? Give yourself chance, a chance to correct a decision that turns out to be more good more bad than good. Bridget and I had a cabin that we bought before Mimi and Vera were born, and it had appreciated over 16, 17 years, and we weren't getting up there because the girls are in sports, and I said to Bridget, I think we should sell the cabin. And in a moment of weakness, she said, okay. And we did a one-time showing. person came through and bought the cabin at our asking price, and after the three days expired where you can't rescind it, Bridget and I are lying in bed, and she said, I can't sell the cabin. And I said, well, honey, I said, we've, we've, we have to sell the cabin. She goes, I can't do it. It's not a cabin. It's going frogging with Mimi and Vera. It's, it's all these different experiences that we had over the years. So I, being the uh, sensitive, emotional husband that I am, I did a quick calculation and thought, do I want to buy another cabin or do I want to lose 50% of my assets in a divorce settlement? And so I came up with... <laughs> so anyway, within a month, we bought another cabin. And... 
the amazing thing is this is a better place than our old other place. Way less money, but, but it worked out well for us. We were in a different place, and we ended up buying a place that, that we took an irreversible transaction and reversed it. The elders say we must let go of the shore, push off into the middle of the river, keep our eyes open, and hold our heads above water. Principle five is it's not about the money. How many of you want to know how much money you'll need to retire? <laughs> Mumbling. Okay. Here's the calculation. Ready? If you can live off of 5% of your portfolio and allow it to keep pace with inflation, that's the simple calculation. But that's not the way things are. In fact, if you cling to a number that you must have before you retire, you're never going to be comfortable. Our experience has been that if someone holds to a number, then they're focused on keeping that number at the expense of choices that will leave them far better off. Or, if they are the types to focus on a number, that number keeps changing as they get closer to it. Here's the real retirement secret. Spend time appreciating what you have instead of always wanting something more or different, and understand that things are generally not about money, but the feelings that you get from the things that money can buy. When I was in my late 30s, and I know some of you are thinking to yourselves, God, I thought he was still in his late 30s, but no. (laughs) And some of you are thinking to yourself, how can he even remember what his late 30s were like? Anyway, when I was in my late 30s, I'm 49, I bought a big sedan. I could have bought a number of different cars, and each one had some sort of feeling attached to it. But maybe I wanted to show the world that I was successful or that this was a way of expressing some kind of power. But it was more than wanting a smooth ride or a good stereo. And very quickly, ironically, I became embarrassed that I owned this car. I found myself wishing that I hadn't felt such a strong need to publicly display whatever it was I wanted to display. And if you think back through your life, think back to a moment when you were feeling exceptionally good, it almost always is from an experience, not a purchase. True wealth comes only from the place where you don't crave anything that you don't already have. Principle six is figure out which little things matter. In other words, sweat some of the small stuff. When I was a kid, we used to have those flip books, and each page had a picture on it, and then you ruffled them all the pages, and they flowed into a story. And that's what our lives are like. Every day we make countless little choices that ruffle together into where we are right now at this moment. And there were some things that we had little control over and many things where little choices may have big impact. But the key is determining consciously which choices matter and which ones don't. One of the best tools that I've had for this is the serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Those words sit in front of me at my desk along with a Gandhi quote that Mimi and Vera gave to me for Father's Day one year. We must be the change we wish to see in the world. And if you believe, as I do, that as a society, we're all in this together, then little things do matter. How you treat people impacts how they treat others. Seemingly insignificant moments can have lasting impact. I still remember a 20-second conversation that I had with a high school track coach over 30 years ago. His words words changed my entire approach to life. After I knocked the bar off high jumping and was storming around, he let me know that I was acting upset for everyone else's benefit rather than calmly thinking about what I had done and what I needed to do differently. Small things matter. 
Last year I was walking the dogs on Christmas morning. A couple came toward me on the path around the lake. And they were taking up almost the entire path. And so I was not in the Christmas spirit, obviously, and I was muttering to myself about how rude and inconsiderate they were. And they came up to me as I stood in snow up to my knees and said, Merry Christmas, and shoved a giant candy cane into my coat. I know. I'm not really as big of a jerk as I come off at, but in that situation, I I think I was. Anyway, small things matter. At our house, we instituted this little thing called a way-to-go jar, and we have these pieces of strips of paper that are all cut up. And whenever any of us catch one of the other ones doing something that we appreciate or something that we, that we value, we just write it down and, and put it in that way-to-go jar. And then every Sunday at dinner, we, read, we pull from the jar and, and read what happened. And you'd be amazed at how much a, of a difference it makes in the lives of, of, of all of us. Principle seven is give away the things that are important. And this doesn't mean simply money, although when Bridget and I decided several years ago to give away 10% of everything that we earned, I feel that that did dislodge money's stranglehold over us. But the people who've made the biggest difference in my life were those that shared their experiences or their hopes with me. And then I get to pay it forward myself. For example, in our company, we give everyone five paid days a year to be used for charitable work of any kind that they want. William James has said that most of us want to be both a saint and a millionaire but admits that what he does to achieve the latter would probably disqualify him from the former. (laughs) But I don't think that's true. Doing well and doing good are not mutually exclusive. One of the things that I try to do is send the loving-kindness prayer to others, which is, may you be free from danger, may you have mental happiness, may you have physical happiness, and may you have ease of well-being. And I say that over and over when I think of someone who I feel like needs it. Principle eight is don't take everything so seriously. One of our clients passed away a little over a year ago from complications of ALS. And from the time that he was diagnosed until the time that he died, it was 18 months. He was one of the most vibrant, funny, engaging people I'd ever known. And we worked with he and his family long before he was diagnosed with the disease. We watched him start to come into our offices first with a cane, and then a walker, and finally in a wheelchair. We drank coffee with him as he told his stories, and when he could no longer hold a coffee cup, he sipped the hot liquid from a straw. He died way too young at 62, and while he left a significant estate, what lives on are the stories that he told. And even while his passing is still raw, we can't talk about him without smiling. We certainly can't control what the future has in store for us, but we can control how we deal with it. The elders say we must let go for the shore, push off into the middle of the river, keep our eyes open and our heads above water. All that we do now must be done in a sacred manner and in celebration. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Spend your life wisely. May it be so.